say thank you and welcome to another edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel, where we talk about everything and anything cannabis, trying our best to see if we can help you navigate this space out here while you're trying to figure out whether or not this is even something you want to be involved in. I'm going to make sure I bring you some research. I'm going to make sure I bring you some information. I'm going to make sure we talk about the issues that are most important to talk about today. And today I got a great show for you because our guest today is a founding partner of a company that's called Mr. Cannabis Law, a full service firm that exclusively focuses on hemp and cannabis industry. He's a licensed, he's licensed in Florida as an attorney, certified public accountant, and a real estate agent. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Mr. Dustin Robbins. Yay! That's the ladies and gentlemen. Yay! <laughs> Dustin, thanks so much for being here today, sir. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we were having a, a nice little conversation even before we started recording, and I'm just excited, but I'm also disappointed because... You know, we normally do these, these podcasts in 45-minute clips. I have a feeling that you and I could talk for about two days. Yeah, absolutely. So let's back up for a second. What kind of law did you practice before you got into cannabis law? So before I even got into law, I was actually a CPA. I worked at Deloitte for a bit in the tax and consulting department. Uh, then after law school, I worked at Holland and Knight uh, doing commercial litigation and transactional work. Then after that, I actually went in-house uh, running a multi-state manufacturing firm where really practiced all different types of areas of law from transactional to M&A, raising capital. This wasn't in the cannabis space. This was not in the cannabis space. Um, when I sold my, I, I was there for about five years. I sold my interest uh, a little bit over a year ago, at which time I really didn't know what I was planning to do. And uh, I ended up running into a couple uh, of friends of mine who were in the cannabis industry. I helped them through a transaction. And uh, I noticed that there is a huge demand in the cannabis industry uh, for legal expertise, um, tax expertise. Because of uh, 280E, it makes a lot of the transactions pretty complicated how you set them up. Um, also from a real estate perspective, there's a lot of demand. So I saw that my skill set fit really well with the industry. Uh, so I decided to jump in and create my law firm. I also saw that other firms, uh, like my old law firm Holland and Knight were not actually operating in the space because marijuana is still federally illegal. So I also saw that there, there wasn't that high level, sophisticated legal expertise uh, that was really needed for the cannabis industry. So I decided to create my firm to, to provide that level of, of expertise in the industry. Well, in some ways, that's a double edged sword and also a double edged blessing, because if there aren't a lot of lawyers who are you know, familiar with cannabis law, that means there's not a lot of people on the prosecutorial side who mm -hmm. are familiar with cannabis law either, correct? Absolutely. And and that's part of the challenge, even as a can in, in this area of law, um, the laws are being created and we're trying to really create some of the laws, how it should work. So there's really only probably a handful of attorneys here in Florida that I trust that I can call for any sort of legal advice when I get into a particular issue that I'm not sure about that relates to cannabis law. So there's and, not and with them, when you call them, you have to kind of wonder whether or not they even know what they're talking about, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really at the end of the day, most of the time it's not like they're giving me a correct answer. It's more we're using the Socratic method, asking one another questions, trying to figure out what's the best solution because there's just tons of gray area in this area of law. So in 
it makes it very challenging and, and you got to know who are the right people to reach out to and, and, and have the right resources around you so that you get the right answers. I mean, when you look at this idea of cannabis law, let, let's kind of like talk about what is the full spectrum of what cannabis law encompasses? It's a great question. I, I actually get that question pretty often. It's extremely broad, pretty much touches every single area of law, uh, whether it's M&A, transactional, litigation, intellectual property. A cannabis business has to deal with all the normal business business uh, issues and legal issues of any other business, but then they also have the overlay of additional restrictions. So really what cannabis law is, is understanding how the regulations relating to cannabis relate to all the different other areas of law. So for example, if someone's looking to uh, get a trademark on their cannabis product, they could go out and hire a, a trademark attorney and they could hire the best trademark attorney. But if that trademark attorney doesn't understand the laws as they relate to cannabis, they are probably going to get a denial letter um, from the examining officer when they go and they put in because marijuana is federally legal. Now, there's they understand, new- wait, they have to understand that federal law trumps state law in some ways. Exactly. But not completely. Right. Well, there's some nuances, especially in the trademark situation. There's nuances in every area of law. But for example, since states, certain states happen to say it's legal. What you see is a lot of the marijuana brands, they'll go and they'll file for trademarks from a state perspective, not from a USPTO perspective. You'll also see them filing with the USPTO, but they'll file to to protect their apparel. So they won't be um, looking for a trademark for their actual product. It's more so for their apparel. So there's a couple little tricks really in every area of law. You could even take real estate. I see all sorts of landlord lease agreements in the cannabis industry, and they'll have you know, some of the basic provisions that really just don't apply to the cannabis industry. For example, if, if you, in, in most leases, you're going to see something that says if uh, the tenant does anything illegal, then they're in breach of the, the lease. But well, you're automatically doing something illegal, illegal federally so by just actually growing, providing, dispensing, exactly. whatever. Exactly. Right? So these attorneys that aren't paying attention and they don't know and they think they just could practice real estate law the same way when they're dealing with the cannabis company, they're, 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 they're not doing their, their client a justice in, in representing them. And really what I, what I advise, I, I co-counsel with a lot of attorneys. So a lot of attorneys who are doing real estate or M&A work, they'll pull me in as the cannabis expert if they're doing a cannabis M&A deal. And I'll just make sure everything's on the up and up uh, from a cannabis law perspective. Yeah, but now with the laws constantly changing, every single state is changing their laws, even here in Florida. In the, in the state of Florida, and we're recording this podcast today from, you know, uh, the Miami, you know, Broward County area of, of uh, we're really in, in Brickell mm-hmm. um, in Florida right now. And over the course of the last year, the state laws have changed multiple times, have they not? Dramatically. Every day there's a new change. And it's not even just the state law. You got local municipalities, you got administrative rules changing, you got court cases. So you really got to stay on top of the law, especially if you're if you're practicing cannabis law or if you're just operating a business in the cannabis industry, you got to make sure you're staying on top of it. And I mean, no, you know, if you if you had to crystal ball this and think, how long is it going to take before we get some sort of common sense <laughs> around cannabis in the United States? And I'm talking about, you know, just, just pontificate for a second, but, you know, like everybody's trying to figure out, okay, in, in recent weeks, I've seen 
you know, major bust happening on highways where, you know, uh, police in one state have pulled over a truck and they're claiming to have, you know, done the, the, the biggest marijuana bust in the history of America and later finding out that it was a hemp bust. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it should not have been a bust. And so now you've got a whole bunch of police municipalities sitting there with egg in their face going, well, uh, it smelled like marijuana. Uh, how are we going to get to a point? Pontificate for a second. Tell me, how are we going to get to a point? Well, what should we do to get to a point to settle this? Well, the, the whole 0.3% issue and just kind of to back up how, where that all arose, that's from the 2018 Farm Bill that basically legalized hemp and defined it as 0.3% THC or less. So right now we're in a situation where uh, hemp is federally legal as long as it has 0.3% THC or less. It's hemp and it's federally legal, whereas marijuana is federally not not legal. So um, so we have a very complicated issue. It, it arises in the employment context. We're seeing issues with employees testing positive, but we're also seeing a lot of challenges with law enforcement not being able to determine whether a particular cannabis product is legal hemp or illegal marijuana. I mean, and I guess in the way you're supposed to test it is to be able to, to aggregate a whole crop, grind it, and then randomly take out a section and test that. Well, I mean, I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there. I mean, as a person who knows how to grow and, <laughs> and how to put it together, I could grow, you know, 10 plants that are completely marijuana plants, mm-hmm. grow 100 plants that are categorized as hemp plants, mm-hmm. completely go ahead and process that, that, that cannabis or that, that hemp, grind it all together, and I can literally to sit back and play until I get 0.3% THC from a sample, mm-hmm. right? And that would make it legal hemp or does, which well, doesn't make sense to me. Should not be that way. Yeah, well, what the 2018 Farm Bill does and what the USDA interim rules do is they um, they have that, the time of testing is really upon cultivation. So they've actually, in the USDA interim rules, now it's required that those samples are taken from a state representative, uh, which before Florida actually already had their draft hemp rules drafted and it allowed the licensee to essentially take their own samples and send them to the third party testing lab for for testing. The USDA interim rules totally changed that. So now Florida actually needs to go back and revise their, their state hemp rules to be consistent with the USDA interim rules. But the time test to test is actually at the time of cultivation. That's when the USDA interim rules are determining whether it's legal hemp or federally illegal marijuana. But again, is that now going to require a testing of every plant or is it a testing of every batch? So the way they're doing it in the USDA interim rules, it's a sample. So, um, and the way Florida, and so I, I, I know we're bouncing back and forth between federal and state law. And this is one of the challenges here right. is that you got, you have federal framework and then you have a state framework. And, and, and from a state perspective, uh, what Florida has done is they've actually defined a plot and plot is something that is defined in our Florida hemp rules and they've said that every single plot needs to have a sample taken. So if you have a 50 acre piece of land, you could break it up into 10 different five acre plots. And that means that you would have to take a sample 
one sample of each of those five acre plots. Therefore, if one of those acres ends up testing hot, you only need to destroy that one plot. You wouldn't have to destroy all 50 acres. But when you say if that one acre tested hot, you mean if that one plant Correct, correct. Yeah, hot. yeah. It's, so now I got to get into that acre and pull up, you know, maybe only two plants. Absolutely. And the other 98 plants could still be good plants. Absolutely. And even the methodology of what part of the plant, where are you taking the sample from the top of the plant or from the bottom of the plant? Is it the whole plant? Um, and those are all things that uh, different scientists and, and chemists and, and horticulturalists are all trying to work with the USDA to really figure out because it's not as simple as just saying 0.3% THC or less. You got to really talk about the, the method of testing, the method of sampling, what parts of the plant are we testing? And a lot of those questions just really haven't been 100% resolved. You know, what throws me at this is that, you know, we've had hemp available in America for the last hundred years. Yeah. Hemp has been available. Hemp seed protein, hemp, hemp shampoos, things like that have been available. Mm -hmm. And we never went back, you know, 10 years ago and tested all the hemp seed protein to find mm -hmm. out if it was 0.3%. Right. So why all of a sudden are we being so stupid? You know, it's from decades of decades of, of stigma being ingrained in the brains of Americans and, and people outside of America. You know, it's really been a, a lot of brainwashing that has taken place. And we've forgotten that uh, we used to use hemp years ago. And, and I predict moving into the future, nearly every single industry will in some way touch the cannabis plant, whether it's the building industry using the fibers for building products, paint companies using the seed oil for varnishes. And, and we, we already know that some of the cellulose material is being used right now in batteries because we Absolutely. recognize that cellulose from hemp is a, a better storage for electricity than graphite. Yeah, it, it's unbelievable. I, I, I actually watched a, a hemp documentary from decades ago and it had a bunch of hippies on there talking about how great the plant is and I used to laugh at those hippies but the reality is they were way ahead of their time they really saw that this plant has tremendous potential and I'm just now over the past few years you know being enlightened and I now see it but some people these people have been preaching this for a long time yeah because they've literally been looking back at the history of America and most people do not understand that in this country up until about you know 17 28, 1735, it was almost against the law. Mm -hmm. You were considered un-American if you were a farmer and didn't grow hemp. Hemp was one of our biggest export crops. It's the reason why, you know, we had every sale that we had for yeah. the entire U.S. Navy and uh, every, 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 the word canvas comes from cannabis. Yeah. We wouldn't have even had the Wild Wild West. You know, George Washington, all of our four of the founding fathers grew it. The entire Revolutionary Army was clothed in hemp fiber. Absolutely. The only thing that the North and South had in common was that about 60% of both uniforms were made from hemp fiber. And the unfortunate part is that if we continued on that path, we'd have a beautiful supply chain set up for, for hemp. But since we totally reversed direction and we es essentially banned it, we don't have the supply chain right now to support a lot of the, the big plans that, that some people have to, to launch some of their hemp products, like building products sure, and, and, and apparel. I mean, you need, you need tons of supply chain infrastructure built out in the United States. That's just not there because it's been banned for so long. Let's talk a little bit about this. Let's go back to the legal uh, 
point of view, and you mentioned it a couple of times, and this is one of the biggest issues that I think is is bouncing up all over the country right now, is that because, again, of this 0.3% THC availability in hemp products that makes it legal, mm-hmm. you know, depending on your metabolism, my metabolism, your weight, your body fat content, depends on how much THC your body will store. Mm-hmm. And if you are a consistent hemp user, and, and especially right now, those people are listening and tuning in that are trying to find as much CBD as they can find. And a lot of people don't understand that the science is starting to prove out a little bit better in this, this regard that, you know, a lot of the products in the marketplace right now have so little CBD in them mm-hmm. that it's not even worth taking. People yeah. are being ripped off and, and, and fed a line of crap believing that, you know, you get something that's got, you know, you know 0.5 or 5% CBD, it's going to be of some sort of value. And most science realizes that, you know, even if you're microdosing, you need to be microdosing throughout the day mm-hmm. so that you raise your CBD level to at least about 100 to 150 milligrams to actually get any kind of benefit when it comes to your endocannabinoid system. So let's say I'm that person, like I am, who takes between 100 and 150 milligrams of CBD every day. Mm-hmm. I know that, and I'm taking the product that I actually produce myself, and I know that through the testing system that we use, we can, I'm not getting any THC, but let's say that, you know, even my manufacturer tries to run a fast one on me, and I'm getting that 0.3% THC every day. Mm -hmm. Over the course of about a month and a half, I'm going to raise that level of THC in my body to a detectable level. Mm -hmm. Now... I also do consume THC, so I'm not <laughs> but let's say I'm that guy who doesn't consume THC, and all I'm doing is taking CBD, and then I go into work one day, and the you know the boss says, "Oh, everybody's gonna take a urine test." I go take the urine test, I come back positive for THC, mm-hmm. and I say, "Whoa, wait a minute! No, 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 no! Here's what I've been eating," and he goes, "Well, it says THC. I don't care what it says. We get into an argument, I get fired." How are we going to stop this silliness? Well, it starts with the legislators. So so what's interesting is, you know, I get a lot of calls from employees that have been terminated for testing positive for THC. And, and before the 2018 Farm Bill, the main question was, you know, number one, are you taking it legally from a state perspective? You know, and, and generally those were the calls I was getting were people that were that had a, a state sanctioned, you know, medical marijuana card and, and thought they were doing everything 100% legal only to find out that they get terminated because marijuana is still federally illegal. So the first question is really, you know, were you taking federally illegal marijuana or were you taking federally legal CBD or hemp? Um, the, the framework, if it was medical marijuana, different states are coming out differently on different issues. Some states have actually passed statute to, statutes to protect employees. Others have had courts that have actually protected employees. There's starting to be a little bit of a trend. In the beginning, there was really no protection for employees. And and over the past several years, we saw some court cases coming out protecting employees. And then we saw some legislators taking some action protecting employees. Um, But that's a totally different topic than the hemp issue. If you were taking federally legal CBD and you test positive for THC, it's my position that there's no basis to really terminate you. And therefore, unless an employer has some sort of evidence that your positive THC test was derived from hemp 
or, or from marijuana as opposed to hemp, he really has no that that employer has no basis to really terminate you solely for the reason of a positive THC test in my position. But now, but what would be your recourse here in the state of Florida? What happens in Florida? Because it's happened here in Florida where there has been a person terminated <clears throat> for testing positive for THC. <clears throat> Excuse me. And again, there's that gray area. Do we know it came from CBD or did it come from, from you know, medical yeah. cannabis? But if they had a medical cannabis card, what would be their recourse? What could they do? So let's say, let's forget about the hemp piece of it. Let's just say it was medical marijuana. The, the first question is really to ask what state you're in. You know, if you're in some states, they have actual laws that protect it. Most of those laws in different states, they carve out an exception for on-site use of marijuana. So, you know, I think everyone's kind of in agreement, not not totally, but on-site use of marijuana probably isn't the best thing. And what I mean by on-site is you're actually at the at the job actually smoking cannabis. Where where people are more comfortable with it is is off the site use of it. And there's been this huge distinction between on-site and off-site. And Correct, because if you go home at four, if I get off at four o'clock, five o'clock, go home and just like any other employee, sit back instead of with a glass of wine, but I sit back with a rolled joint at 6 p.m. in the evening. I use that from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. I go to sleep at 10 p.m. I wake up at 5 in the morning to go to work. I'm still going to have THC in my system. Absolutely. And, it, and it's crazy because if you think about it in Florida, we have a Florida constitution has said that marijuana is medicinal. And these people have state-sanctioned cards. Excuse me a second. Around. The federal government says <laughs> marijuana is medicinal the federal government owns a patent on cbd yep. we know what the cbd says if you open with the, what the patent says especially if you read the abstract and this was written about 18 years yeah. ago yeah so what's really the most ridiculous thing in the world and i don't understand why you know this the, what, what should really happen is that the entire marijuana industry should get together and do a class action lawsuit against the federal government saying, <laughs> how dare you Make a statement using taxpayer dollars to research and find a conclusion that allowed you to actually petition for a patent, give yourself a patent, and turn around and bust somebody and say that it's not medicine. I'll gladly file that lawsuit on your behalf and the other class of participants My that brother. want to file it. But, you know, that's a whole other piece of it is the federal element. And we've seen a lot of progress recently um, from the federal government that has shown some signs of, of, of positive uh, of progress in the industry. We have the Safe Banking Act, which is a very big bill that passed the House. We have the States Act. Uh, we have various different bills right now in Congress that are actually gaining momentum. I don't think they'll pass the Senate um, or at least by the time they pass the Senate, they'll be in a much different form than they're currently in. But, you know, this is great news for the industry that it's even that these bills are getting where they are right now. I know everyone wants change immediately um, and it's frustrating. And I talk to a lot of people that are just fed up with everything. But the reality is, is that it's going to come in baby steps and we just got to keep moving forward and progressing. And it seems like the federal government is starting to come around to to considering some sort of at least deferring to the states. You know, a lot of people talk about federal legalization. I don't think we'll see federal legalization, meaning that the federal government's not going to say marijuana is legal. What we'll likely see is the federal government eventually just deferring to the states and saying, if a state treats it as legal, then it's legal. If a state treats it as illegal, then it's illegal. They may even carve out something where it's legal medicinally in a state. They'll respect medical marijuana state law, but they don't, they're not going to respect 
recreational marijuana. So we may see different versions. I don't think federal government will ever say it's, it's legal from a federal perspective. They'll just say it's not illegal from a federal perspective. And I, but I, I still go back. I, I, I'm hit you one more time as a lawyer. I've wondered this for the last 20 years. I mean, from my perspective, if we have a government that used taxpayer dollars <laughs> to research, fund research, and, you know, people out there listening in and tuning in, you, know, you need to understand that since uh, G.W. Bush, Papa Bush, you know, we've had a program at the University of Mississippi that's now gone on over 43 years where every single year the federal government puts in a budget a line that actually funds research at the University of Mississippi. Yeah. And since over 40 years, they have been dispensing marijuana to patients, sending it out in the mail. There's only three of them alive now that started in the program. I actually got one of the canisters and took a look at it that came from the University of Mississippi of rolled marijuana joints <laughs> that our government was producing. Wow. How dare you be able to hypocritically say that these three people can use marijuana and the federal government thinks it's okay and no one else can. And don't. Why isn't there an ability to, to actually file a lawsuit against the government well, saying you're discriminating? There's something called sovereign immunity where it really makes it very difficult right. to, to sue the United States government or really any government. There's all sorts of challenges there. But the cannabis industry is just filled with contradictions. If you look at the IRS, they have a tax code, tax code 280E, that basically doesn't allow marijuana companies to take any of their duck deductions other than cost of goods sold. So things like rent, uh, and paying employees, all sorts of different overhead you're not able to deduct. So the federal government, the IRS is happy taking your tax dollars from these illegal, federally illegal enterprises, but they're still calling it illegal. So it's like, you know, if you're, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And, and that's, that's where we're at right now with the federal government there. And, you know, they're trying to figure it out themselves and, and hopefully they'll, they'll come around and get so it. Have to go, probably have to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it may, it may take, it may take that, but realistically, you know, suing the United States government is going to be a big challenge. More likely you're just going to have to get out there and lobby and help them understand the, 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 the craziness of what's going on out there and the contradiction that they're um, setting forth. Right. I mean, you know, I've, I've looked at, you know, in the last year, you know, the Democratic candidates all, you know, at one point or another, each one of them has kind of stepped up and made some little frivolous comment. But not one of them has acknowledged the fact that their government, they sitting in Congress, helped pass the budget for this last year that actually includes a line in it that says research for marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it's it's ridiculous that it's still a schedule one drug that the, the right. idea, you know, when it's a schedule one drug, it's basically saying that there's absolutely no medicinal value to it. And, you know, there's not that much research out there because it's been federally illegal, but there's sufficient research out there such that it should not be a Schedule One drug. And there's sufficient research out there that the U.S. government has paid for themselves. Yeah, we absolutely. pay for research in other countries mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't even know about. You know, the U.S. government funded research in Israel. <laughs> Matter of fact, the U.S. government funded the research with Dr. Mashulam, Raphael Mashulam, who actually discovered what THC is, what CBD is, discovered what the other cannabinoids are, discovered the endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. Now we recognize that there are universities around the country that are starting to teach the endocannabinoid system, the secondary, if you will, for lack of a better term, you know, secondary, you know, uh, uh, nervous system that we have. That's part of the makeup of every mammal on the planet. Yeah. And, and it's, it, it, 
there's so many issues right now. I'm, I'm representing the FDA just sent out a lot of letters to different CBD companies, and I'm representing a couple of them and responding to the FDA. And what's incredibly frustrating is the lack of feedback I get from the FDA and the lack of guidance. And as a result of their lack of guidance, the consumers are hurt because what a lot of companies are doing now they're not putting that they have any CBD in their product. They're saying they have full spectrum hemp oil. Right. And the issue with that, and I've talked to Dr. Michelle Weiner, who will be on your show tomorrow. Um, the issue with that is that everyone's endocannabinoid system is different and different people will need different amounts of CBD. So if you're not putting CBD on the label and how many milligrams of CBD is in it, because of the FDA, you're not putting that information in it, but the consumer is being hurt because that consumer now cannot understand what amount of CBD they're actually taking in. Instead, they just know that it's X amount of milligrams of CBD oil or a full spectrum hemp oil. They don't know the specific amount of CBD. So the laws are actually creating a situation where the consumers are actually being hurt and there needs to be more guidance there. And I often tell people again, you know, if you, if you really want to know and what the federal government believes that CBD does, all you have to do is look up patent number 6630507 and read what's called the abstract. In that abstract, that's what the government defines CBD is capable of doing. Mm -hmm. And it actually sits there and tells you that it's an anti-inflammatory. You know, it, 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 it helps with neurological disease. It helps to be a neuroprotectant. The government said, this isn't me, Absolutely. this is my this is our government using our taxpayer dollars to fund research, to develop a patent to put it in before the patent office, they claim this. Mm -hmm. So when they turn around and say that there's no medicinal value, they're lying through their teeth. Yeah, and it's a contradiction too because the FDA has, has approved Epidiolex and, and some other CBD type drugs that are derived from cannabis. Correct. So the idea but that- But they've only approved that because they recognize that the company that produces Epidiolex is a British company half owned by a US company called Bayer Aspirin <laughs> that- you know, filed for the patent and got it. These are people, it's if you're right this minute, you know, you can go down to your pharmacy and ask them to write you a prescription for krill oil. Mm -hmm. It's under, you know, a label of some pharmaceutical drug, Laveza or something like that, where they're going to charge you a couple hundred bucks for a, a bottle of, of 20 or a bottle of 50, where you can go right to the shelf in GNC or, a C, or CVS and pick up, Krill oil, it's yeah. the same thing. You can get a prescription for vitamin D3 because if you remember years ago, there was everybody talking about how D3 was going to help with neurological disorder. We've not proven that out yet, by mm -hmm. the way. Let's make sure I get that very clear. It's <laughs> not been proven. As a matter of fact, most recent research came out and said, hmm, maybe we were wrong when we said D3 was the end all. But I mean, okay, there's research that they came out and proved that that may be wrong, but there were companies that spent the billion dollars to go and test the same off-the-shelf yep. D3 and turn it into a prescription drug that a prescription that a pharmaceutical company can then charge you 600 times market value for. Yeah, it's uh, it doesn't make much sense. You know, the, the this it's it all comes back to the stigma that's so deeply ingrained in society and our federal government against cannabis. There are products out there that are very dangerous, even just right in GNC that you could buy right off the shelves that you know. No problem. They don't even need to be FDA approved or anything. Yet a product like CBD that has so much, especially anecdotal evidence, but there are now studies as well, you know, showing the, the health value that they have. Uh, it just it's incredibly frustrating that they're 
they're creating this double standard for cannabis. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more. I'll go back. I'm going to keep, keep getting <laughs> off topic, but you know, let's talk a little bit more. You recently spoke before a group of uh, law enforcement people, correct? Absolutely. And you were trying to explain to them, you know, the difference between hemp and cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. And how did it go over? So I'm, I'm on the Broward County Medical Marijuana Advisory Board, and, and I'm very happy to be uh, a resident of Broward County that has actually taken steps to create an advisory board like that, where we're, you know, actually going out and educating the public and, and trying to make sure that we're helping the commission make good policy decisions relating to cannabis. And one of the things we did, we put on an educational summit for police officers and firefighters to educate them. Uh, on various issues relating to cannabis. And I explained some of the challenges with respect to probable cause now because hemp, which is federally elite, federally legal, smells, tastes, and looks just like marijuana. There's absolutely no way you could distinguish between, at least not with the eye, legal hemp and federally illegal marijuana. So right now, a lot of the municipalities are kind of holding off on allowing officers to use the appearance or the sight or the smell of marijuana as probable cause. And when I was discussing that topic with the officers, they got extremely frustrated. And I, I quickly had to change my demeanor and, and, and empathize with them because I realized these police officers, at the end of the day, they're really just trying to do their job. They weren't they're, they weren't trying to take a position one way or another that it should be legal, it should be illegal, but they're just genuinely frustrated at the lack of clarity in the law and the fact that they can't go out there and properly do their job. And by the way, they have canines that they've trained for years on smelling for marijuana. Those canines all need to be retired because they're not able to distinguish right. between hemp and marijuana. So the police department is extremely frustrated. And I think it's important for the, the cannabis community to listen to the police officers and understand their frustration and not be so quick to jump at them when they make a false bust thinking that it's marijuana. At the end of the day, they, they were trying to do their job. They just weren't educated. They didn't have a group like the Broward County Medical Marijuana Advisory Board that, that just to educate them and, and let them know. And there needs to be more groups and more education for law enforcement. Absolutely. And, you know, there also, I think, needs to be a sense of, of I don't want to call it more camaraderie in the cannabis industry. I mean, this one of those industries that, you know, in a similar way to, let's say, hyperbarics, when hyperbarics first started, hyperbarics wasn't federally, you know, uh, uh, it wasn't a watchdog. Mm -hmm. They ended up having to police themselves. Yeah. Understanding that oxygen, though, it's everywhere. Yeah. Oxygen is a medication and can kill you. So, you know, the the hyperbaric industry had to really stop for a second and recognize that we have a product and they came together as a, you know, uh, as a group and decided to police themselves. Now, you know, I don't know what it's going to take for the cannabis industry to do the same thing. Well, what's so funny about the cannabis industry is we're begging for regulations. We keep asking, regulate us, regulate us. You know, it's, uh, it's not many industries that are going out and asking for laws to be passed to clarify, you know, all the different issues that arise, whether it be hemp or marijuana, every single cannabis business that I that I work with, they all are proponents for regulations because the more regulations they have, the more they understand what the rules of the game are. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I mean, and I think that's one of the things that's extremely important that we do get some national level of, you know, of 
regulation across the board. And, then, and that's in every aspect of the mm -hmm. game from how it's processed, how it's produced, how it's grown, how it's extracted, using every single source of, uh, of information that we can get to yeah. do this. I work with the group ASTM D37. So ASTM, they make global standards for the building industry. Pretty much every industry has ASTM. They created D37, which is specifically for the cannabis industry. And it was set out to essentially address the issue that you just mentioned to create some standards, national standards, because you got different people doing cultivation this way in one state and another state this way. And, you know, testing methods are done in one state like this, another state like that. Even with some of my, my multi-state companies that I represent, for example, let's say a CBD company, they have the challenge that every state now is going to have different laws relating to the labels for CBD. So if you're a, a CBD company and you sell to multiple states, now you're going to have to figure out how to be in compliance with every single state's label laws. doesn't make sense. That's why there's a huge need for a nationalization and standardization of some of these regulations. How long do you think it's going to be before we get to at least that? I think parts of it will, you know, if, if before we get to full nationalization and, and uniformity, I think it's going to be over a decade. But I think there's steps we could take. Um, Even when we're sitting here right now with 34 states in the District of Columbia, 34 states and the District of Columbia have some form of marijuana, yeah. medical marijuana, recreational adult use law, it's going to still take us 10 more years to get down the road? Yeah, well, I think I think the challenge with nationalization is just, you know, the 10th Amendment allows states to make their own rules for certain issues. And right now we're kind of letting the, the states be, ex, you know, labs of experimentation with different laws and different regulations. But, you know, we're going to have to learn from the mistakes that different states make. And there's just certain items that just aren't shouldn't be left to the states and should be dealt with from a federal or national level just to make the playing field more even. Yeah, you know, I mean, if we if we started off by just going back to what the federal government found out itself, the cat connect cannabinoids as antioxidants and neuroprotections straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> this is what the government says. According to the United States federal government. Cannabinoids such as CBD have been found to have antioxidant and neuroprotective properties. The newfound proper property makes cannabinoids useful in treatment of a wide variety of oxidative associated diseases, such as ischemic, age-related, anti- or inflammatory, autoimmune diseases. Uh, the cannabinoids were found to have particular application as neuroprotectants, for example, in um, limiting neurological damage following ischemic Salts such as stroke and trauma. I'm reading directly from the abstract of the U.S. federal government. And I'll tell you, if any of my CBD clients put any of that language on their website, they'd be getting a call from me because right now CBD companies can't make any health claims whatsoever unless it's Epidiolex or another FDA-approved drug. But these other CBD companies are right now operating in this world where they can't make any of those claims that you're stating right there right. if they're not FDA-approved. Which is insane. And I'm hoping that, you know, over the next, I hope it's less than 10 years, but, you know, every single year right now or every single election cycle, we see more and more states coming on board that are legalizing. Yeah. So, I mean, we could be at a point here very quickly where we have, you know, well beyond a majority, you know, we're at 34 now and one, which is 34 in the District of Columbia. But, you know, when we hit 40 states, I mean, come 
what are we gonna do? Yeah, and and even here in Florida, we've making we've made significant progress with the recreational movement. I'm uh, the legal director of a group called Normal Palm Beach. Uh, Normal is a national organization that focuses on the legalization of marijuana, and we've taken significant strides. We have two um, petitions right now here in Florida. That I, that I saw a news report. I guess it was about a week and a half ago. Well over 600,000 respondents, correct? Yeah, well, we're getting, we need to get over 700,000 signatures in in order to get it on um, the actual, to, to be voted upon. Um, but we have hit the amount that's required for Supreme Court review, which is about seven, a little over 70,000 um, signatures. So we've done the Supreme Court review. Um, Supreme Court did have actually some feedback about the language of one of the petitions. So there's two petitions. And the main difference really is that one petition deals with home grow, and really it, it, it's more for the the public, whereas the other one is being funded by some of these big medical marijuana dispensaries like MedMen and Certera, and that one doesn't mention home grow, so it's gotten a lot of uh, negative publicity. But just because the, the Constitutional Amendment doesn't mention home grow, it still defers to the legislator, and that still gives the legislator an opportunity to potential, potentially allow home growth. So I think some of the, I understand people that are frustrated with some of the language and they think that it's, you know, the big medical marijuana companies are just trying to, to, to make an, a, an amendment that helps their company. But I also think it leaves enough uh, flexibility that the legislator could come in and potentially allow home. Now, most likely the legislator won't allow home grow um, if they have something to say about it, which is why people want it on the constitutional amendment. Um, but I think that's going to become a very, very big issue as we try to legalize recreational is, is whether or not we're going to allow home grow. Okay. And, and you know, the, over the course, what do you think it may pass in the next two years, next year? Um, I think so. I think so. I think they've raised at this point one, the, the group that's head on signatures, they've haven't raised enough money and they have no chance. The other group that's being funded by Certera and MedMen, I think they've raised a little over 2 million. I think if they could get that number up to about 4 million, I think that'll be sufficient funding that they'll, that they'll need to, to get the signatures they need. I think they need to get the signatures just in, in the next few months. So, you know, it's definitely going to be a, a very tight, tight squeeze. But I'm very hopeful that they'll be able to get those signatures so we can get it on, you know, get it voted for and, and get it passed here in Florida. Of course, people need to understand, even once it gets on the ballot, still needs to be voted upon. Then the legislator needs to pass laws. The DBPR or whichever regulatory body is handling it needs to pass rules and they have to have an application process. We're still years away from actually seeing a recreational market here in Florida, even if it does get on the ballot. And here in Florida, there is a medical initiative already up and running correct? yes yeah there's about 20 there's 22 licensees currently that are able to it's a fully vertically integrated license here in florida which is actually up for supreme florida supreme court is actually reviewing whether that vertically integrated structure is against the florida constitution um and i think they're actually going to affirm the lower courts and say that it is unconstitutional which will mean that the legislator will have to go back and draft um, a horizontal structure, which will allow a lot more players into the market, smaller players. You know, it's very expensive running a vertically integrated company. And that's what we have in Florida. It has to be vertically integrated. So all 22 of these licensees need to be able to grow, process, dispense and deliver. And that costs about to make it fully operational, about 22 million. Right. 
So it's very, very expensive and it's not for small business owners or some of the, the social equity components and those people that want to get involved in the industry. Here in Florida, there's there's virtually, and I get a lot of calls from people. My name's all over the place. So I get calls from all sorts of people that want to get into the industry. And usually, unfortunately, my first question is, is how much money do you have to get into the industry? Because unless you got several million you're not really going to get on the marijuana side. Now on the hemp side, there's there's definitely some opportunities and there's some ancillary services you might be able to provide. But realistically, unless you you, you have a, a few million dollars behind you here in Florida, at least you're not going to be able to get involved. Which really doesn't make much sense, especially in an industry that that there have been so many people and from the social equity standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been so many people who've been shut out of this industry. Absolutely. So now, what what about, uh, do you think this is a burgeoning industry, the legal profession of cannabis in the country, in Florida? Do you think it's a burgeoning industry? It's just beginning? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's a, I know that there's a huge demand for my services. I get calls all day, every day, my phone is ringing. So, and what's really interesting is, you know, right now here in Florida, like we just discussed, there's only 22 marijuana licensees. So my my TAM, my total available market as a law firm, is really just 22 licensees. And out of those 22 licensees, only like 10 or 12 are actually operational. So, you know, my total available market is very small. And I'm busy as could be. My firm, we got more work than we could handle. And we're doing things. And, you know, we do a lot of stuff out, out of state as well. We do license. I'm working on an Illinois license right now with a social equity applicant. So we get involved in all sorts of different different, different stuff. But as legalization opens up and you have cannabis touching all those different industries that I just mentioned, there's going to be a tremendous demand from business owners that want to understand how the laws affect them getting into the cannabis industry. Or into the hemp industry. Or into the hemp industry, absolutely. Wow. What, what, what's, what's next for you, sir? I'm just, I'm staying the course. My, uh, I just, just a few days ago, I brought in another, brought on board another intern. So, you know, I'm slowly building my team and, and the people I have around me. Um, and I look forward to just helping the industry grow more and more and providing a highly sophisticated expertise that is very much needed for the cannabis businesses um, that are in this industry. And And like I said, the big firms, a lot of them, they won't get into the industry. And that's unfortunate because I came from the big firms and they provide a fantastic legal service. They really do. You know, they got real estate departments, you know, intellectual property department. They have all those departments and it's a great service. So right now, the cannabis industry is at a disservice, the fact that they can't access those. So my firm, I try to take that expertise um, that I come with, and I try to give that big law experience mixed with the small firm type of attention that you're going to get with also the cannabis knowledge, and you're just going to get a very high level, high level quality of service when you're dealing with my if law. If you firm. want people to reach out to you, how do they get hold of you? MrCannabisLaw.com? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a, you could either go to MrCannabisLaw.com. That's MrCannabisLaw.com. Or you could email me at info at MrCannabisLaw.com. I'm also on all the social media, um, hashtag MrCannabisLaw. So, yeah, lots of different ways to get in touch with me these I, days. I got to say thank you so much for being so deeply involved in helping all of us navigate this space. I know people are going to be wondering, you know, there are people listening right now going, oh, my goodness, I just got – you know, uh, fired or my boss called yeah. me in and said, I want to talk about your test. So, you know, there's at least is a place that they can start. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, and, and I'm a good place to start. I, I get a lot of calls from people that just want to talk. And I, I pretty much give everyone at least 10 minutes free. Because um, gotcha. a lot of times 
people's answer questions could be answered very, very quickly. You know, they want to know, you know, are they allowed to do this? Are they allowed to do that? So I try to keep my, my phone, you know, available. I try to answer and, and give them as much information I can in five to 10 minutes. Of course, after that, I'll, I have my one hour consultations that people pay for, but um, I try to give some information, uh, some free information as much as I can. Sure thing. All right. Well, look, you've been listening and tuned in to Let's Be Blunt with Montana. I can tell you how blunt this conversation has been and I hope to continue to provide you with information that you can use, that you can actually tangibly use. Thank you so much to Mr. Dustin Robinson for being a part of the show today. Thank you so much, Dustin. Thank you. I Thank appreciate you, it. Absolutely. Be well. And make sure you tune in to the next. Let's be blunt. Let's be blunt.